Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign God and that you are the one who determines the course of history and the course of our individual lives. And Lord, you have given to us the freedom to choose to walk with you by faith or not. And as we study the history of Israel, we see the consequences of those who chose not to, and yet the blessings of those that were upon those who chose to walk with you. Lord, I pray that we will be people who will walk down the path that you have set before us. And Father, our prayer is with Steve, uh, Steve and Brenda and the girls that you will be with them as the deadline approaches that you will supply and you will strengthen and enable and that through this all, uh, this whole procedure, their faith in you will be made stronger than ever before. Oh Lord, we distrust that this morning you will be present in accomplishing your good will and your good purpose that the glory of God will be achieved this morning. And Father, we pray that you uh, will be empowering those that are teaching the word throughout this complex this morning, both in the, in the second hour service and in each Sunday school class. And we pray that you'll be particularly near uh, Maxine Collard this morning and give her strength and empowerment as this is a difficult time for that family. And we trust you for this in the name of Jesus, amen. A little bit later, we'll be praying specifically for uh, from Tom Collardy's very critical condition, I guess, this morning. So let's keep uh, praying for them. Chapter 16 of Numbers is where we are studying today and have been studying for the last Sunday or two. And what's interesting about the 16th chapter of Numbers is that it records yet another rebellion in the ranks of Israel. It's incredible, as we think of this, given all that God has done, all that God has demonstrated in the presence of his people, that they should yet be involved in rebellion. But what it proves is, first of all, I think, that the majority of Israel was walking in the flesh and not in the spirit which I think gives us uh, opportunity to reflect even on the church today and the fact that probably the majority of people even within the church in America today and around the world are not walking in the spirit. Most of us are very familiar with the first portion of the 12th chapter of Romans. Uh, Paul in the second verse there challenges God's people to not be conformed to the world but to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. For what purpose? To prove what the will of God is. To prove what the will of God is. And, and that is, I think, uh, can be transferred easily to Israel here. Israel is to be proving what the will of God is by demonstrating God's empowerment here on, the, on earth. But, but they are not walking in the spirit. They are walking in the flesh by and large. And the contrast between Moses and Aaron and, and, and Joshua and Caleb and, and the bulk of the people, I think, makes that quite clear. By extension, we too walk in rebellion if we do not walk by the Spirit. And it's a very strong temptation to walk in the flesh. I mean, every day we have to renew, allow the Lord to renew our minds. And the renewing of the mind, of course, comes primarily through the Word of God. And if we aren't familiar with the Word of God, if it's not important in our lives, 
then, then we have nothing to renew us and, and to draw us away from the things of the world and to conform our thinking to the ways of Christ. So many times Paul particularly writes about having the mind which is in Christ Jesus, having a mindset on the things of God, how important that is, and not only for Israel but for us. In this particular chapter, what we are seeing <coughs> as we look at the various passages here is that there is a major rebellion going on which has a twofold thrust. There is a rebellion against the leadership of Moses politically and spiritually over Israel. And then there is also a rebellion against Aaron as high priest and the priestly clan being the clan of Aaron. And these are kind of intertwined together here. As we read in that very first verse of the chapter, now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. As I say, we, we have to look at that as kind of a two-fold rebellion. And it's dealt with separately, in, not in time, but in what happens to the two groups. And we see that as we proceed through this chapter. I'd like for us to read now, beginning at verse 15 of chapter 16, where we read, Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done harm to any of them. And Moses said to Korah, You and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. And each of you take his firepan and put incense on it. And each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 firepans. Also you and Aaron shall each bring his firepan. So they each took his own censer and put fire on it. And they lay incense on it. And they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Moses' response in the first part of this passage is directly to the words of Dathan and Abiram in the previous passage where they basically accused him of leading them out of a land of milk and honey, which they defined Egypt as being, and then not leading them into the promised land of milk and honey, which Canaan was. And here he was accused that he did this because he wanted power and wealth for himself. Well, in the passage we just now that more, but ticked off by people. And sometimes people intentionally trying to, to rile us. And if we respond to them without going to God first, we're going to be responding in the flesh, most likely. And the result is not going to be pretty. So Moses goes to God. And he goes to God angry. Now, God can handle that. You know, God can handle your emotions, whatever they may be. Uh, you read through the book of Psalms and you find that David and, and other psalmists, they go before God in various <laughs> you know, emotional states. They go to God angry, they go to God in depression, they go to God in, in wonderment, and they go to God in bewilderment. In any situation you think of, God can handle it. I mean, God made us and he understands us and God is not offended. If we are honest, if we're honest, it doesn't really matter how you go to God. He will, you know, he will deal with it. And so, in his anger, he goes before God and he protests 
that as the leader of Israel, he had not benefited one whit materially. And he said, I have not harmed a single one of these people. Not a single one. Now, there were probably were those who were thinking back to the day when Moses slew the Egyptian there in Egypt who had been beating up on one of the Israelites and hid the guy in the sand. You know, I mean, Moses did an act of violence and he harmed someone. But that was in his past and that was something he did in the flesh and not in the spirit. And so Moses is protesting his innocence here. And Moses knows that God knows everything. He goes before God, who knows whether he's telling the truth or not, and protests his innocence knowing that God knows he is being truthful, demonstrating thus his total innocence of all implied or directly stated wrongdoing. Now this passage does not tell us exactly what God says to Moses, except by implication we assume that God responded to Moses' plea by giving him the plan that we read about there in verse 16 and 17. That is, that Korah and the 200 were to bring their fire pans on the morn, in the following morning before the tabernacle, and Aaron would bring his fire pan, and we're going to let God choose uh, who is the, the chosen high priest of Israel. Will it be Korah with his 250 supporters, or will it be Aaron with only Moses as his supporter? This is, is going to be the test. Where, where do you get this idea? Did Moses just concoct this out of his own head? I don't think so. I think this was the inspiration of the Lord. Moses is constantly going to the Lord in prayer. And as we read about these things transpiring and Moses proclaiming that this should be done, you can believe that it came as inspiration from God above. Since the challenge of Korah and the other Levites, and I think we can interpret from the passage that all or at least most of the 250 supporters of Korah are Levites because they have fire pans and, and they go, you know, with incense burners, they go before the Lord and the bulk of Israel isn't going to possess uh, those particular implements. That their challenge was to the priestly leadership of Aaron. And the plan that has been laid out is to make it absolutely sure, obvious to anyone who is God's choice. It was to be a literal trial by fire. You know, we talk about trials by fire and we go through a difficult time and to us we mean that, that we were persecuted or we were oppressed or we had a bad illness or financial problem. And, and you know, that is a trial by fire to, uh, you know, by implication, but we're talking about a little one here in the case of these men. Korah and the 250 who sided with him were to bring their little incense burners with incense and fire before the tabernacle of the Lord the following morning. And Aaron was to do the same. same. And then it was up to God to choose. Now Moses has no problems with this because God, uh, Moses already knows who God chose. And actually, if Israel was paying attention, they knew too because God had already made it quite clear at Mount Sinai. He said, Aaron is the high priest. His family will be the family of priests. I choose the tribe of Levite as the, as the, uh, uh, the clan to, to carry the tabernacle. But it is the family of Aaron that will hold the priesthood. And God went through the elaborate ritual of ordaining them to this place, this position. And all Israel was witness to it. It's incredible. I think that if I had been one of the rebels, I would have thought twice at this point 
I'm supposed to bring a fire pan with incense before the tabernacle of the Lord tomorrow morning? And God is going to choose? But when you think about it, that's the choice that faces all people, you know, in their lives. We don't know when the end will come. We don't know when we'll stand before God. And yet we so often choose to do that which is not of God's plan. To walk in contradistinction to his clear will. When the next minute we don't know, but we'll stand before our maker. As one has said so uh, accurately, we're just one heartbeat away from eternity all the time. I think there probably were a few amongst the 250 who had a little doubt, you know, twiddling around the back of their heads there, but they weren't willing to admit it to anyone else. Human pride is the greatest destroyer. You know, some people will not admit error when it stares them in the face because of pride. Why do these men do this? Why are they doing exactly the opposite of what, I mean, how long had it been since God had made it clear who his choice was at Mount Sinai? It couldn't have been more than a month or two. I mean, I have a little trouble with my short-term memory, but 250 people, somebody should have remembered what happened two months before, especially since God demonstrated it so powerfully. Well, how can he do this? I think Paul gives us the answer in the first chapter of Romans. We won't turn to it. But in the first chapter of Romans, we read that ungodly men suppress the truth while professing to be wise. And they are, in fact, fools. And their foolish hearts are darkened. Blindness and arrogance. Kara and the 250 are blind and they're arrogant. And it so blinds them that they actually do what Moses tells them to do. They get their fire pans and they're going to come before the tabernacle tomorrow morning. Why'd they do this? I think they did it for two reasons. One, I think they came with the attitude, we're going to show you, Moses. God has changed his mind. Or you have run the course, you and Aaron. You have proven to be incompetent. God is going to show you tomorrow that he has chosen us. Well, that probably was in the mind of some, probably in Korah's mind. But I think really more a motivating factor than anything was that Moses had called their bluff. They have publicly challenged Aaron. They have publicly challenged Moses. Now Moses is okay, let's find out what is true. You come before the tabernacle tomorrow and let God choose. What can they say? No, we're not going to do that. They would, have, they would appear to all Israel as chicken all of a sudden. You know, that they were really just um, bluffing. And so Moses calls their bluff, and they have to show up in order to save face. Well, whatever the case, they do. They show up the next morning, 251 strong, counting Korah, on one side, and Moses, or that is Aaron, with his single supporter, on the other side. Now, certainly we have to feel that somewhere in the background, Joshua and Caleb and Miriam and the family of Joshua and Caleb and so forth are supporting. How, however they did that, we're, it's not explained here. But humanly speaking, Moses and Aaron are badly outmanned here. If this were a high noon experience or showdown, they weren't going to last very long, you know. Two against 250. Odds are not good. 
But what we know, and we read this so clearly when we read the sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. This is not flesh against flesh. This is not Korah in the flesh against Aaron in the flesh. This is spiritual warfare. Satan has taken the natural jealousy of Korah and these 250, and because of that jealousy, he has gained a toehold in their lives, and he has now blinded them to the consequences of this challenge. The last words of the 19th verse seem to indicate that the whole congregation was here to watch the showdown, where it says, Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. This seems to imply not just the 250, but as many as could gather around and watch this were here. I mean, this was a big encounter. This was the OK Corral, spiritually speaking, if you will. And there was a crowd gathered to watch this. And what a show it will be. They will have never seen anything like it before. We're told they all stood there before the tabernacle. And all of a sudden, the glory of the Lord appeared. Just reading that, to me, when I think about it, causes chills. And you just wonder, how could these rebels stand there and all of a sudden, <laughs> the glory of the Lord appears. How do they stand there without chills going up and down, their knees becoming weak, you know? I mean, how do they do this? I mean, it hadn't been very long since a similar account. <laughs> we just read it. Let me just go back to the 14th chapter and, and read that 10th verse there. Uh, th this is when the uh, Israelites, you know, are grumbling against Moses and they're saying, we should have all died in the wilderness. Let's pick a leader and go back to Egypt. And they're, they're rebelling against the Lord there. And it says, but all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. I mean, how long ago was that? Not long, not long at all. Uh, we don't know how long. The scripture does not give a time frame here. But we can assume at the most a matter of a few weeks. At the most. I mean, they were talking about stoning Moses and Aaron. And all of a sudden God appears and what was the consequences? All of those 20 and older will, will perish in the wilderness. That's a big consequence. And that had just happened. And here these 250 are standing there with all their backers behind them, and the glory of the Lord appears again. It should have been deja vu big time. <laughs> the glory of the Lord is like a brilliant searchlight which reveals sin and rebellion. That's why no one can stand in the presence of the living God in the flesh. That's why the scripture says no man has seen God at any time in the flesh. That is Man in the flesh, seeing God in the spirit. Be because no one can stand before the brilliant searchlight of his glory in fallen flesh. And these men dared to do so. Verse 20. Number 16, verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, O oh God, thou God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, wilt thou be angry with the entire congregation? 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. I think it can be implied from this passage that almost all of Israel stood behind Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. They were supporting their position. They were not supporting Moses and Aaron in this showdown. I, what this does is demonstrate over and over again, even as I emphasized last week and before that, I mean, Moses and Aaron should have had a strong feeling of aloneness. There were so few that supported them against the great mass. And, and they become a kind of a microcosm of what it means to be a Bible-believing, God-obeying Christian. Because you can even feel lonely inside of a church if you are one who really obeys God and really lives by the word. Because what happens is you become called things like bigot, you know, narrow-minded, um, not understanding the times, not, not being willing to realize that we have to live in this world and therefore we have to compromise with this world. Well, you know, that's, you know, God deals with that over and over again in Scripture and we, we don't. The, the thing that keeps coming to us uh, as believers is that we live in the modern world. And as moderners, we don't live like medieval people or like ancient people. Therefore, the, the rules have to be changed. And, and you have to understand the Ten Commandments in a different way today. Well, I, I just don't find that because, you know, the Bible was not written in one night. The Bible was written over 1,500, 2,000 years worth of time. And God sort of knows how the flow of history is going to be. And, and God knows that the modern human beings, as, as technologically advanced as we may be and as erudite as we may think we are, uh, that we are no different from, from those who walked in the Garden of Eden and, and defied God, that we're just as needy and just as arrogant and just as sinful, that we have not advanced or evolved to some kind of a higher form that, that needs God to change the rules. This is ridiculous. But, but this is, you know, the arrogance of the modern age. And it's not just the modern age. You, know, you go back to the Renaissance time. And it was the Renaissance people who called the period that preceded them the Dark Age. Because, you see, it came after the glory of Greece and Rome and all the humanistic uh, uh, examples of art and, and thinking and philosophy that came out of the Greco-Roman world. And, and then you go into the medieval world, you know, and, and people were ground clanging on each other's armored suits, you know, and there was no... They called it the Dark Age and the Medieval Age, you know. Who did that? The Renaissance people. And what's interesting is you study the Renaissance, history was a big issue to the Renaissance people, but what they meant by history was the history of the Greeks and the Romans and the history of their world. But forget everything in between because it's not important. Dark age meaning a period in which nobody knew anything, which is ridiculous because you study the medieval world in detail and you discover wonderful things happened. <laughs> I mean, most of those great, glorious cathedrals, whatever, whatever you think of, of, of cathedrals, they are glorious buildings, fabulous structures, which were built without modern engineering, without modern machinery. They didn't have any of these 200-foot-tall cranes, you know, to put this stuff up with. And you walk into some of those cathedrals with these towers that seem to go up forever. I mean, the great cathedral at Cologne, the Twin Towers are 520 feet tall. That's a 50-story building. And the thing was 
you know, built hundreds of years ago. So it's, it's a very um, arrogant position to assume that everybody who lived before us was ignorant and we're the smart people. <laughs> but that's what seems to come about over and over again. As God had said to Moses at Kadesh, he told Moses and Aaron here, step aside, I'm going to fry the whole lot. I'm going to barbecue them on the spot. Just get out of the way. Now, we might say, and, and, and this is where people have these words of accusation against God in the Old Testament. The God in the Old Testament was a, was a violent God who just wanted to destroy people. Well, let me think about the logic of this here. Step aside, Moses and Aaron, so that I can fry the people. Well, does God need somebody to get out of the way, physically, in order to cook them? No. I mean, he could have just parched them where they were, incinerated them. And Moses and Aaron didn't have to get out of the way. What is he saying? He's telling Moses and Aaron, are you going to intercede again? I have called you to be intercessors. Are you going to intercede again? And they do. They do exactly as they did before. They demonstrated that they were filled with God's Spirit, that they were in tune with the Almighty, that their minds had been transformed so that they were in accord with God. They were not walking in the ways of the flesh. And they fell on their faces before God in intercession. Don't, Lord, destroy this whole congregation for the sin of one man. Now, of course, it isn't just the sin of one man, but, you know, so to speak. Korah is the instigator here, Dathan and Byram also. And 250 have thrown in their lot here, and, and the fact that they will all be destroyed indicates they're all guilty here. But, you know, speaking of the two and a half million, it's as if it were one man here that is responsible for the rebellion. And notice how they address God here in this particular passage. The literal wording here is rather unusual. Moses says, O El, Elohim of the spirits of all flesh. El, the Hebrew word El, literally means strength. When used in context as it is here, it means the true, powerful God. God of the spirits of all flesh. The true and sovereign almighty God who is also the God of the spirits of all flesh. Why, why does he use this terminology? Because he's interceding. And he is saying to God, all flesh is dependent upon you. You're the author of all flesh. You're the preserver of all flesh. Have mercy on these people. I mean, he's reminding God that these people cannot survive in his presence. They're totally dependent upon him. Therefore, O oh God, have mercy on these people. Where does he get all this? He gets it because the Spirit of God is working through him. How is it that you or I can have compassion on someone who doesn't deserve compassion, if we do? It's because God has given us that compassion. How is it we can actually pray for someone who's doing something dumb when we could actually go over there and say, you're doing something dumb, why don't you stop it? We don't pray for them with, with real earnestness. It's because God is giving us that desire to do this. Moses knew that God held each individual person responsible for his own sin. No one else is responsible for somebody else's sin. 
Therefore, upon that basis, he is asking God to have mercy on the congregation. Yes, they're standing there. They're acquiescing to what Korah and Dathan and Byron are doing. And, you know, their real desire is to be on their side because they're tired of the leadership of Moses and Aaron. They're too strict. I mean, Moses and Aaron want the people to walk according to the purposes of God, according to the law of God. The law of God is tough. You know, you, you can't steal, and, and that doesn't mean just go out and walk off with somebody's horse. You know, it, it means that you shouldn't even, as Jesus will later define it, have a thought of really wanting somebody else's goods. You shouldn't want somebody else's wife or husband, you know, and, and you can't worship any other gods. I mean, it's really narrow. So maybe if Moses and Aaron are kind of pushed aside, Korah will give, and Dathan and Byron will give a little more liberal leadership here. Something we can more live with. It's kind of like when Muhammad came along. And Muhammad had these visions out in the uh, cave outside of Mecca. And he came back with this word of God that gave, you know, was given to him by the angel Gabriel, he said. Well, when you really study what, what Muhammad's teachings are, they were pretty much in line with what the Arabs wanted to do and how they lived. You know, it was, it's, it, and of course, he was a male, and it's a very pro-male type religion, as you probably know. And, you know, it was, it was fitting. It just kind of, it was a good fit to the Arabic nomads of that particular day. Well, one of the things we find is that the Word of God is not a good fit to our flesh. It's constantly hewing us, <laughs> honing us, grinding us, chipping at us, uh, because our natural reaction in, in every situation is not to do the will of God. Our, our natural reaction is to lust. Our natural reaction is to have envy. Our natural reaction is to have pride. <laughs> and God says all of those things are not of his spirit. And it just keeps putting us in our place, knowing that we are totally dependent upon the God of the spirits of all flesh. So Moses is interceding for these people. And he's saying, although they have acquiesced, they are actually the blind following the blind. They are like sheep being led by an evil shepherd. Therefore, it is the evil shepherd who must pay, not the sheep. The sheep are paying in the sense that they have been led wrongly, but they are not corporately responsible. Please don't slay the sheep for the evil of the shepherd. Well, God's mercy was revealed when in response to the intercession to Moses and Aaron, which God inspired them to do, he said, all right, then tell the people to get out of harm's way. Everybody get out of harm's way. Judgment had already been determined for the rebels. Korah and the 250 were going to die. Dathan and Abiram and their families were going to die. That was God's ordained judgment. The intercession was not for them. Moses and Aaron's intercession did not cover them because they had sinned the sin unto death and they were to pay the penalty. Verse 25. Then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abiram with the elders of Israel following. I mean, you know, this whole scene has been set. Everybody stand before the tabernacle. Now Moses goes off with the elders of Israel traipsing along behind him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them lest you be swept away in all their sin. 
So they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the doorway of their tents, along with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens up, opens its mouth, and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned, not me, the Lord. Dathan and Abiram had refused to come before Moses. Remember, we read that last week. Moses summoned them, and they said, no, we're not going to come. We're not going to stand before you, because... In, in effect, they were saying, you know, if we do so, then we're admitting to your leadership, and, and you're not the leaders in our eyes anymore. We are. So we're not going to come. Well, b because they had refused to come, they were also not standing there before the tabernacle uh, as part of the group that was to challenge uh, Aaron's authority there. And probably the reason for that was they were Reubenites. They, they were not Levites. So they had no... They had no uh, goal to try to become priests or to challenge Aaron's high priesthood. They were challenging Moses' political leadership of the people. Now, again, this attests to Moses' character. Moses says, fine, then I will go to you. You won't come to me? I'll go to you. And it, it just, you know, it reminds me of, of princes that think they're so wonderful that people have to come and grovel before them to demonstrate the great majesty and honor of, of this particular prince. Well, Moses was not of that character. Moses was willing to go to them if that's what had to happen. And we're told all the elders of Israel trailed along behind. Uh-oh, Moses is going. We better go find out what he's going to do. And so they followed along behind. Now, with, you know, the thought passed my mind as I was thinking about this this morning. Who are these elders of Israel? I mean, the elders of Israel have been destroyed on several occasions here. <laughs> so, I mean, we have to keep electing new elders here. So this is a new group uh, that's coming along here, the next in line. Kind of like in warfare, you know, the generals get knocked off, new guys can be promoted. Whereas in peacetime, it's tough to get the higher command. And so these guys had been promoted through the ranks, probably. Moses stood before Dathan and Abiram, and he confronted them in two capacities, as God's minister of justice and also as God's minister of mercy. A minister of justice in that he stood there to declare God's immediate judgment upon these rebels. As God's minister of mercy in that he was there to move everybody away from the tents of Dathan, Abiram, and Korah, out of harm's way. Get away from them. Moses warned the people to separate themselves from Dathan Abiram, and he says, do not even touch anything they own. Now, don't even try to pick off a sheep or a goat or anything along the way. It's funny how 40 years later, this message will have been well forgotten, and when they take Jericho, there will be, you know, the stealing of goods that had been placed under the ban. Well, if you were Dathan and Abiram, and you were in your tent, 
with your wife and your children. And suddenly the whole mob is backing away from you, forming a big circle back from your tent. <coughs> what would you do? Well, these people are defiant. We're told they stand in the doorway of their tent and watch. Now, I mean, of course, we're, we're what, what do you call it, Monday morning quarterbacks? We know what's going to happen. We know what happens. And certainly they didn't. But I, I would think that there would be a little tingle of uncertainty kind of running up and down their spine. What's going to happen now? I mean, how often had Moses been God's man to declare what God would do next? Had it ever failed? Never. And you're trusting that it's going to fail this time? I think it would be a strange sight. You know, if you could have been up there in the, uh, in the eyewitness news helicopter, you know, with your camera looking down and, oh, strange scene down below. Big circle around these tents. What's going to happen here? What's, what's going on? Is there a, a standoff of, of some sort going on here? What about the people? As they stood back and, and they looked at the tents of Dathan and Abiram, did they know what was going to happen? No. There was uncertainty there, but there was expectancy. They felt something was going to happen. It's like many authors would say, there's, there's static in the air, you know. They know something is about to happen. Because they knew God had, to this moment, never failed to support Moses. Never. Would this time be different? I mean, if you were a <coughs> wagering person, where would you put your money, you know? I'm not advocating that, but I'm just saying if one was. <laughs> what is interesting is, <laughs> what, to me what is so fascinating is, the people do what Moses says. They back up. Why do they do that? Because Moses has been their proven leader over and over again. Who are Dathan and Abiram? Well, they may have had all kinds of credentials, you know. They may have been you know, direct descendants of Reuben, of, of the first rank, blue blood, you know. But they were wannabes. Uh, they were challengers. They hadn't proven themselves yet. People weren't taking any chances. They backed up from the tents of Dathan and Abiram. In the midst of this dramatic standoff, Moses now proclaimed what the test was going to be to prove the leadership of Israel. Who is God's choice to lead Israel? What is this test going to be? Now, let's assume that in the congregation there may have been a few who walked with the Lord and were obedient. Did they need any such test? They didn't need any test. They knew who God's leader, chosen leader for Israel was. They knew it was Moses. But the vast majority of the people apparently did not know or did not want it to continue to be Moses. They were not walking with God. They were not walking in faith and obedience. They wanted God to perform yet another miracle so that they would know, yeah, we got to keep following Moses. Unfortunately, you and I live in a day and age when people still want miracles. They want to believe God only if he demonstrates his reality through miracle. God's word is not enough. Walking in faith is not enough. Miracles are needed. I was thinking about that, this passage in, um, in 1 Corinthians seemed rather appropriate. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul is uh, speaking, beginning at verse 1, Paul says, 
And when I came to you, brethren, <clears throat> I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. <clears throat> and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom, wisdom, uh, wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Power of God is demonstrated in spiritual realities. Power of God is demonstrated in the truth of the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul preached a straightforward, simple gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and you will be saved. You and I do not need audio-visual demonstrations of God's reality in order to believe God. But we have to understand that ancient Israel did not have this book in their hands. All they had was the law given to them from the top of Mount Sinai and the corollary laws that went with it, which of course was sufficient, but nevertheless, that's all they had. They didn't have this whole lovely array from Genesis to Revelation, and they did not have 2,000 years of church history to look back upon. God knew that, and therefore God said, they want a miracle? I'll give them a miracle. I will validate my authority. I will validate Moses' leadership by miracle. And so Moses proclaimed what was about to happen. And what is interesting further about this is that in the last phrase of verse 28, we have an interesting uh, statement that Moses makes where he says, and Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds for this is not my doing. This is not my doing. And I think we can take that uh, two ways. That all of the deeds that God had done through Moses as his appointed leader of Israel, none of them had been done in the strength of Moses, or as it literally says there in the Hebrews, from his heart. When he says, none of it's my doing, the Hebrew is, from my heart. I didn't do anything that I have done as God's leader in my own strength, but only in the strength of God as his anointed leader and by his empowerment. But it also means, I think, that what's about to happen is not from my heart either. This is from God. God's about to do what happens next. Certainly Moses was tired of leading this faithless group of people through the wilderness. And I think Moses would have been glad to turn the leadership over to Dathan and Byram. Here, guys, you run this show in the wilderness. I'm going to retire to my tent. He would have been glad to do that. But that wasn't what God said was to happen. And so the test was to be clear. If they die a normal death, God hasn't chose me. But if the ground opens up and they drop in, then God has chosen me. Boy, you know, talk about going out on a limb. But we have to realize. He didn't think this up on his own. Most didn't say, hmm, what kind of a test could I have here? You know? <laughs> he was proclaiming the word of God. I'm sure it amazed Moses as much as anybody else. Say that again, Lord. <laughs> you could do what? All of us know something about earthquakes, but they're never usually that specific. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, ground does every once in a while open up, but um, usually not in the midst of a dramatic situation like this on cue and uh, take the people with them. Well, next week we'll, we'll pick up and, and look at what happens there and how it uh, transpires.